Good morning. Uh, it's, uh, it's really nice to see you all this morning. Um, I'm feeling, I am feeling that 823 right now, not 923. Is anyone with me? Am I alone? Okay. Uh, but regardless of what time it is, it's so good to be with you. As, as Matt mentioned this morning, it's a little bit of a different format. And if, if you've been around for, for the past seven, eight weeks, uh, then you know we've been going through a series called The Story. And, and the big idea is this, this beautiful reality that in the Bible, God has given us a story. And the Bible tells not just one interesting story alongside other stories, but the one true life-giving story of the world. And, and so what we've done over the course of six or so weeks uh, is we've broken up the biblical story into what we've called acts, the, the six acts of the, the drama of the Bible. Uh, and we've just walked through the story. And as we've gone from week to week, we've welcomed and encouraged you all to send us questions that come up. As we're preaching through the story to say, hey, as questions come up in your community group or during Sunday morning or as you're driving to work and you think, oh, I wonder about this, to email us questions. And, and you did. Uh, in the best of ways, we got a ton of really, really good questions uh, for which we are so grateful. Uh, in fact, far too many to be able to address here on a Sunday morning. Um, and so we've, we've had to be selective, but, but what we've done is we've chosen one question that, that corresponds to each of the six acts of the biblical story. And, uh, and again, our, our hope and our desire and really our goal for the whole series has been uh, that, that we would come to know the story better, the, the story that the Bible tells, so that we can learn to inhabit the story. Uh, and ultimately, so that as we inhabit the story, we can learn to tell the story, to tell this story as, as a story that reveals the God whom we meet in Jesus. Um, and so, so this morning, we're, we're going to do a little bit of bouncing questions back, back and forth, um, but I want to begin with a brief word of prayer. Will you join me? Father, uh, we, we pause now and we, we thank you for the gift of a new day, for the gift of sun, light, for the gift of the ability to gather publicly for worship, for the gift of the scriptures and how, how you've revealed yourself through the scriptures and the gift of a vocation and a call uh, as we engage the scriptures to actually become the kind of people who reflect your character to the world around. Uh, Father, we also thank you that uh, we, we don't know all the answers, and that's okay, because we know the one who does, and that's you. And so we ask this morning that you would... Uh, you would make your presence known, that you would reveal yourself in a way that is not only stimulating to the mind, but, but actually moves us in the depths of our hearts, closer and closer to you. Uh, we, we love you too, Father, because of your love for us, and we pray in the name of your Son, Jesus. 
by the power of your spirit. Amen. All right, Michael. So the first question is for you. Uh, come, yeah, there's all kinds of jokes to make, but we're going to stay away from them. Um, first question is for you. It has to do with the first uh, week of this series, which was on creation. And the question is, can I believe in science and the Bible? And a little bit of character for this question. Um, there's, an, there's an event that happens every year in Titten Falls. It's called Titten Falls Day. It's like a community event. There was a young woman I was talking to, probably in her early 20s, who I was asking her, um, you know, if she ever goes to church. And, you know, like a lot of young 20-year-olds, she was like, absolutely not. And I was wondering kind of why, what was her hesitations? And she had all kinds of really good reasons for not coming. Um, And I was like, well, like, if you come to park, I bet you will have a very different experience than what you've had before. And she was like, yeah, I don't really know. And then she kept walking away. And as she was walking away, she said, plus, I believe in science. And I was like, wait a minute, we believe in science too. <laughs> so, this is, this is a live question uh, in the hearts and minds of people out there. Can I believe in science and the Bible? Yes. Next question. No, I'm kidding. Uh, yeah, this, this, is a, this is a good question. And I think it's a question that's on a lot of people's minds and that a lot of people wonder. Um, and, and I think there, there are a few things worth mentioning. And, and let me first say, this, is, this will probably be the, the longest answer I give out of all of the other ones, just to set the stage. Um, but the, there are several things I think are worth mentioning when it comes to this question. The, the first is this. In, in the popular imagination, uh, I think there exists exactly what this young woman articulated, which is that uh, there's this dividing line. And on the one side, there are people of faith, uh, people who believe in the Bible, people who believe in God, um, and, and they, they believe the Bible. And, and then on the, other lo- on the other side of this thick line are, uh, are those who believe in science, and, uh, and the scientists, those who hold reason and rational thought and intellectual endeavors high. And, and, and there's this thick dividing line, and the, the, the two camps are divided, and never the twain shall meet. Uh, I think this is a very common, uh, what I would call myth, um, in the popular imagination. You can't be a scientist and a person of faith or a Christian. Uh, and to be a person of faith or a Christian means in some way shunning or, uh, or casting aside or looking down on, on science. Um, and the reality is, 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 while a little complicated, it, th- this is a myth. Uh, in, in 1916, just to give a couple stats, in 1916 there was a massive survey done of scientists and the question was asked of scientists, do you, do you believe in a God who, who communicates personally with humanity, who actively communicates with humanity, especially through prayer? And in 1916, about 40% of scientists said no, about 40% said yes, and about 20% said, I don't know. 80 years later, 1997, uh, the exact same survey was done. The same question was asked. And the results were pretty much the same. And, and, and not only that, but in, in the uh, 20th century, so the 1900s, 
if you were to, to add up all of the recipients of the Nobel Prizes, you're familiar with the, the five different Nobel Prizes that are given out. Nobel Peace Prize, there's one for, I think, chemistry and economics and uh, literature. And there, there are these five categories of Nobel Prizes that are given out every year to, to people who have either accomplished significant things, not least of all in the area of, of science. Uh, in, in the 1900s, over 65% of the recipients of a Nobel Prize identified Christianity as their faith tradition in some way. And, and so the idea, I mentioned those simply to point out the idea that there are these two camps and they're so far divided um, and you, you cannot be a Christian and, and yet appreciate science. It's just, it's, it's a myth. And, and it's an interesting question as to what perpetuates this. Um, but, but for example, uh, Francis Collins, who's a renowned, a renowned scientist today, um, in, in, in the year that, that the also renowned atheist, Richard Dawkins, wrote a famous book called The God Delusion. Francis Collins, also a renowned scientist, he was the director of the Human Genome Project, uh, this massive scientific endeavor to map out the human genome. He wrote a book called The Language of God in which he describes his journey as a young scientist from atheism to faith as a Christian. And for him, learning more, going deeper into science, exploring the creation more, brought him to a, a place of, of more and more appreciating the beauty and the complexity of this world in which we live. And, and as a result of his journey deeper into science, that actually brought him to faith in God. Uh, very renowned scientist. And so, so I want to first just dispel this myth uh, that, I think, that I think has hijacked the popular imagination in our culture. Second thing I want to mention is this. I, I think it's important to draw a distinction between science, which is, uh, which is, we might say, a way of knowing. Even just the word science comes from the Latin word for knowledge. Science being a way of knowing rooted in the scientific method, right? You make observations about your surroundings, you come up with a hypothesis, and you set up controls, and then you test that hypothesis. It's, it's a way of, of, of attaining a certain type of knowledge. Science is a very different thing from scientism. Scientism is what I, what I would say, it's taking science, which is a way of knowing, and it's making it the way of knowing. Scientism is, a, is an all-encompassing worldview that takes science, which is a great way of knowing certain things. For example, when I go to the dentist, I'm really grateful for science. Right, Novocaine, phenomenal. Uh, there, there are a lot of things that we learn and that we've discovered because of the scientific method. And yet, if we take science and we expand it and say and believe on faith that, that this, this one way of knowing is actually a way of knowing everything, then we're no longer just fans of science. We become actually fans of a comprehensive worldview called scientism. And, and the reality is, there are things in this world that we cannot learn from science. Ethics, for example. Science might be able to tell you what is, 
in certain cases, it cannot tell you what ought to be. Uh, th there's this classic uh, line in the 1997 film Contact. Did anyone ever see the movie Contact? Jodie Foster, the great Christian philosopher Matthew McConaughey. Um, and uh, he actually plays a Christian philosopher in the movie. And, and Jodie Foster plays this scientist. And there's this classic scene where they're talking. And Jodie Foster, is, of course, is a, a scientist. So she's all about reason and, and logic. Uh, and she's talking to Matthew, and they're talking about belief in God. And Jody says, well, what if, what if it's all just a delusion? What if you're delu deluding yourself? Like, I, I would need proof. I would need proof to believe in God. And really, her basic assumption was, everything I believe, I believe because it's been proved. And, and with that beautiful southern twang, uh, <laughs> Matthew McConaughey says, proof, proof, okay. Um, tell me. Did you love your dad? She said, well, yeah, very much. And he said, prove it. <laughs> science is a gift, and it's a good thing, and we can learn so much from science, but it is not the only way of knowing. There are so many things that rational, thoughtful people that we believe and act upon every day that we cannot possibly learn from science. Um, and so, so I think that's an important distinction to make between science and scientism. One last thing, um, and then I'm going to grill Matt, um, and it's this. I think a lot of what, what lurks behind this question is, is the big question of creation and evolution, right? And again, in the popular imagination, there's, there's been this big dividing line drawn between those who believe the Bible, those who believe in creation, and on the other side, those who believe in evolution. And, and the reality is that, that it's, a, it's a bit of a misnomer to, to draw the line right there in the middle, just like that, um, because, because there's actually a spectrum of perspectives when it comes to, for example, how to read the first chapter in the book of the Bible. Uh, the creation account in chapter one of the book of Genesis. And there are many Christians who believe that, that when, the, when Genesis one says, yes, the world was created in six days, that it's referring to six 24-hour periods. Um, and, and as you continue down the spe spectrum, you'll find that there are some Christians who, who say, well, okay, yeah, but, um, but let's look at the Hebrew word day for a minute, yom. Uh, any Hebrew scholar will tell you that this word can mean day, a 24-hour period, but it can also be used to refer to a period of time in general or a season, right? And so, so was this six, literally six 24-hour periods? That's, that's a question that's up for debate. And, and then you move further down the spectrum and you have Christians who look at the genre of Genesis 1, and ask the question of what kind of literature are we dealing with here? Is this a journalistic account, like that of what, which we would read in a newspaper article, or, or is this something a bit closer to poetry? In other words, if, if science asks the how question, could it be that Genesis 1 is actually not as interested in the how question, but in the who question? In other words, it's not a question of how all of this stuff came to be, but, but who's responsible for it. And in beautiful poetic imagery, this 
is the question that Genesis 1 answers for us, which would leave open the possibility of some sort of process God may have used, like evolution or, um, or something like that. Now, now, this is a spectrum within Christianity of different perspectives of ways of reading the text. But notice it's an intramural discussion. It's an intramural debate, and it has to do not with whether or not the Bible is God's word and authoritative, but with what kind of genre we're talking about. Through what kind of literature did God speak his word? And so what, what this means is there is a dividing line that is very important. Um, and yet the dividing line is not between those young earth creationists who believe the Bible and then everyone who believes in science, who are mainly atheists. No, it's the dividing line is over the who question. It's, it's those who do believe the Bible tells the one true story of the world and therefore know where all of this stuff came from. The good and loving creator who we meet in Jesus, right? However it is that he may have done it. And we can have good debate and, and conversation around that. And then on the other side, those who by faith preclude the possibility of a creator. And so there's so much more we can say about this and it's worth probably a whole series at some point. So Matt, if you want to get going on that, that would be great. Um, but, uh, but let me end, end with this. In a conversation I had with someone in a coffee shop once, got, this very topic came up and he said pretty much the same thing that this woman said, an older gentleman. And he's like, I just don't believe the Bible because of, you know, we, we know that evolution's true. And, um, and, uh, and I, I began to share with him some of these things I just shared. Well, actually, there, there are some different perspectives on, on creation. And, um, and as I was saying this, he interrupted me. And, and he said, no, you, you can't do that. You can't, that's messing with the text. You, you can't. And, and he shut me down, and it was a bit emotionally reactive. And, and I, in that moment, I remember thinking, okay, there's something else going on here that goes beyond intellectual barriers for this man. And, and, and this would be my encouragement to anyone who's, who's asking good questions and struggling with, with science and faith. Um, I think there are a lot of people who, who use science as, as sort of a, a shield or, or um, as a barrier to keep very good, very real questions from actually coming to bear on their hearts. Um, and so, so anyway, there's, again, a lot more we could say about this, but, but let's, let's move on to the next question for Matt. Yep. All right, Matt, you ready? Yep. Here we go. Why was the tree, referring to the tree in the Garden of Eden, why was the tree so easy to reach? God, God could have. He could have made it a bit higher, right? Uh, why was it so easy yeah. to reach, Matt? Yeah, uh, so... Just like Michael said, this will also be my longest answer. The, the large majority of the questions actually came from the first two weeks of the six. So this will be my longest answer as well. Um, why was the tree so easy to reach? Uh, the question is kind of asking, like, did God set us up for failure, right? Why was it so easy? And behind this question was also questions like, why was the tree there in the first place? Like, why would God have put it there if, right? And um, a talking snake... How does that work? Who sent the snake? Why could the snake learn to talk? Why was the snake there in the first place? And here's kind of the setup for this, right? If you weren't here those last few weeks, um, 
Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, this is the story of humanity. Uh, God says to Adam and Eve, you guys can eat from any of the trees in the garden except for this one tree. Don't eat from this one tree. And uh, the serpent, the snake, comes along and whispers in their ear, did God, did God really say that? Did God really say that? Because I think if you, if you eat from that tree, you'll be like him. That's a good thing, isn't it, to be like him? I think what's behind that is actually you won't need God anymore. And Adam and Eve, they eat, right? Their eyes are open. They're aware that they're naked, right? They were meant to live in this good, open relationship with God. And all of a sudden, they're hiding in shame. Their relationship with God is broken. Sin enters in and death enters in. That's, that's kind of that's the background. So before we get to the why was the tree so easy to reach, um, just on the nature of where sin and where evil came from, this will be quick. Uh, this is an easy one to answer. <laughs> that's, a, that's a joke. Um, think about it. As soon as God says, uh, you can do any of this, but don't do this, it immediately creates the possibility of disobeying him, of doing something else. And we know this. As soon as you tell your kids what not to do, all of a sudden there's this thought in their head, oh, that's the thing I ought to be doing. And if you think about what's happening in this story, um, God is saying, uh, I want you to have freedom, I want you to do any of but I don't want you to do this. I don't will this. And so when you go against what God wants, what God wills, um, you're disobeying him. And so where sin and evil comes from, it's not like it's created, it's actually like uncreated. Like this is not what God wants. This is not what God wills. Um, if God is a light shining, it is like the shadow, right? It's not a thing. It's actually the absence of a thing. That's, that's kind of a simple explanation for where evil, for where sin uh, comes from. It's what God doesn't want, what God doesn't will, what God doesn't create. And so in a way, it kind of doesn't make sense, if that makes sense. doesn't answer the question, though, of why was the tree so easy to reach? And to answer this question, I want to first think about um, why we were made. Why did God make us? And to talk about this, just think for a second. Um, what, does, what does a good marriage look like? What does what does love in a good marriage look like? Can that love in a good marriage be something that's forced or something that's coerced? Um, could you uh, hypnotize your spouse and get them to love you? And would that actually be love? You know, could you put a, implant a chip in their brain that programs them? Like, no, of course not. Love cannot be forced. Love cannot be coerced. Love cannot be programmed into someone. So when God creates us, what he's doing, he's, you know, it says in Genesis 1, he's creating us in his image. And what it means to bear his image is that we, in a kind of mysterious way, we reflect him into the world. We represent him in the world. We kind of image him into the world. We're, we're, um, our vocation is to be fruitful, multiply, um, steward the earth, be in charge of God's creation, and as his image bears, we are to represent him to the world. And if there's a defining characteristic that we see, that we learn of God throughout the entirety of Scripture, it's that God loves. God loves. Uh, John put it as simple as possible in his first letter, God is love. And just like 
real love between, you know, a married couple, right? Um, God's love is like that too. It is not uh, forced. It's not coerced. God doesn't have to love us. God didn't have to create us. It's that God chose to, that God um, decided to. So God doesn't love us out of necessity. God loves us out of freedom. And what he wants for us as his image bearers, reflecting him, is also to learn, to grow, to develop a sense of love for him that's like it. And so um, God can't coerce us, can't force us, program us to love him. We have to learn to love him. And so um, if we didn't have the freedom to disobey God, if we didn't have the freedom to choose otherwise, we would also never have the freedom to choose him. We would never have the freedom to come to him. And so the question of uh, why is the tree so easy to reach? Well, if it wasn't easy to reach, if you had to um, make a ladder to get to the fruit, right? Or if you had to climb a mountain to get to that tree, it wouldn't be an actual option, right? And what God wants for us is not to be a bunch of robots, but for, be, for us to be free agents who actually choose God and who actually learn to choose God over the course of our lives. Because what he wants for us, and this is the very best thing for all of us, is to be actual recipients of his love, an actual partner uh, in creation, and as we'll see, in new creation. God wants us to be people who um, can, can respond to him freely. And that's why, that's why we have free will. That's why the tree was so easy to reach. Um, you could see from the story, Adam and Eve had the freedom to obey or to disobey. And there was like all the other trees they could have eaten from, but they had the freedom to eat from that one. And so when you think about it like that, um, uh, you know, uh, that's the kind of love that we were made to have engendered in us for God. It's, it's one of the reasons why one of the primary metaphors for God and his people throughout the scriptures um, is like a husband and a bride, right? And like I said, you can't force, you can't coerce love. And that's, that kind of gets to the heart of why the tree was so easy to reach. Um, the one other thing I'll say, though, about this question and this kind of constellation of questions, the problem of evil. Where did evil come from? Where did sin come from? Um, it's in theological, philosophical circles. It's called the problem of evil. Uh, answers to it are called, like, theodicies. The problem with all of this is, is that every answer we give to this question, it is an incomplete answer. It's a part of an answer. Um, think, of it, think of it like a mosaic. Every answer that we give to this question is like one block, one piece of the mosaic. And when you put all of the pieces together, it still isn't the actual answer. It isn't, isn't the actual thing. It looks like the actual thing. And so every answer, including this one, is full of holes. And if you trace any of these answers to their logical conclusions, um, what ends up happening in many of them is that God kind of looks like a monster, or God doesn't look like he cares, or sin and evil isn't actually that big of a deal. And like the worst thing is like the pain and the suffering, the tragedy that you've experienced. It's like, well, it's all part of God's plan. Don't worry about it. And the thing is, it's not part of God's plan. It's not God's will, right? This is what God doesn't want. This isn't what he wants. And so sin actually doesn't make a lot of sense. Evil doesn't make a lot of sense. 
Um, this question, it's the hardest one. It's, I haven't done the numbers, but it's, it's got to be one of the top three most impossible questions to actually answer. It's why literally billions of pages have been written about this over the last few thousands of years. Um, I took two courses in seminary that was just about this question. So I've literally read thousands of pages about this. It's a really hard question to answer. Um, the best answer I've ever read, it comes from this children's Bible right here. And this too isn't a complete answer, but I think this is, this is one that's worth knowing and worth kind of holding on to. Um, in the very end, they're talking about um, the new creation. We heard about that last week when new heavens and new earth, um, every, every tear wiped away, no more sadness, no more pain. And he's talking about um, a man named John wrote that book of Revelation. And this children's Bible said, one day John knew heaven would come down and mend God's broken world and make it our true, perfect home once again. And here it is. And he knew in some mysterious way that would be hard to explain that everything was going to be more wonderful for once having been so sad. That everything was going to be more wonderful for once having been so sad. Hard to explain, mysterious. And he knew that the ending of the story was going to be so great it would make all the sadness and tears and everything seem just like a shadow that is chased away by the morning sun. Um, all of our answers to this question are partial, are partial answers, and some of them are more helpful than others. Um, but the promise of one day, all of the pain, the, the tears being wiped away by the author of this story, um, it doesn't give you intellectual satisfaction to the answer to this question, but what it ought to do and what it invites you to do is to trust him. It's to say, I actually don't know the answers and I can't understand how this suffering, how this thing makes sense, but I can trust you. Um, and that's kind of what, that's what we invite you to uh, with this answer and with more of them. All right, so your next question. The next ones will not be as long, we promise. The next one, this is an easy one. Uh, what do we do with the Old Testament? The Old Testament, it's different. It's, it's, it's a little strange. It's, it's very old. Old Testament, it's, it's foreign. What do, we, what do we do with it? We read it. Yeah. Okay, next question. Um, no, th this is a good question, uh, and because especially if you've ever actually read it. And, uh, and sometimes I get the sense that, that a lot of us haven't actually spent much time reading the Old Testament. And so our impression of the Old Testament is sound bites or something we read in an article or saw in the news. Or, um, but but if, if you do actually read it, you realize that, uh, that oh, the, the, this is a different world. Um, there are some odd things in there. Uh, including commands. In fact, in the first five books of the Old Testament, uh, the law, or in Hebrew, the Torah, uh, there are 613 commands, and uh, including, including one that uh, in, in Leviticus 19, uh, where, where the people of God are told, do not, do not have any garments, don't have any items of clothing that uh, are made of more than one um, uh, material. So, uh, so for any of you 
we're wearing an article of clothing that has like polyester and cotton, shame on you, okay? Uh, no, but we've got all sorts of things in the Old Testament like this, and I'll often hear from, from people who are either skeptical or even antagonistic toward the faith of like, you, you Christians, you're so inconsistent, right? There are all sorts of commands in the Bible that, that, you, don't, that you don't obey, but then you obey others. Um, and and I, I would say, generally speaking, a few things would, are, are helpful when thinking about this question. One, there, there, are two, there are two wrong ways to answer this question. The first is, is and in part because this has never been the case for any Christians anywhere, uh, the first is to read the Old Testament, all of its laws and regulations, as if they are uh, literally as is binding right here, right now, in our context, in the same way that they were when they were first written. And the reality is, Christians have always believed this. At no point in time have Christians ever believed that, uh, that every single law and regulation that's mentioned in the Old Testament is to be literally obeyed and applied as it was meant to be then in our context today. Uh, the other error that can be made is on the other side of the spectrum, which is that well, therefore, since this is a bunch of odd and strange things that clearly don't apply to us today, um, we can just dismiss it. We don't need to read it. It is irrelevant. Um, and that could not be any further from the truth. Um, and so let me say a few things. First, it's interesting to note that uh, what we call the Old Testament was Jesus' Bible. This, these are the scriptures that nourished Jesus' faith. The Psalms, Deuteronomy, all the prophets. Like Jesus knew the scriptures like the back of his hand. His, his faith was nourished by these. His view of God was shaped by what we call the Old Testament. And so that, that should be something that we're, we're very aware of. But, but secondly, though, even, even if you listen to the way that Jesus talks about the scriptures, um, it becomes very clear that that for him, the, the Old Testament is not simply a list of rules that, that we need to obey. Like even in Jesus' mind, that wasn't, that's not how the scriptures for him functioned. Uh, Jesus was once talking to the religious authorities of his day, and, and he told them, he said, you, you diligently search the scriptures because you think that in them you have life. He's like, but these are the very scriptures that bear witness to me. They point to me. In his famous Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, uh, Jesus says, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets, which is a shorthand way of referring to the, a good chunk of what we call the Old Testament. I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. See, in Jesus' mind, and therefore for Christians throughout history, the, the Old Testament is like, is like, as we've been preaching, uh, is like a story that finds its fulfillment in Jesus. And so the first lens that should inform how we read or what we do with the Old Testament is to understand that it's not, it's not designed to be a list of rules that have a one-to-one -one correspondence to our daily lives of, well, we, this is what we need to do and this is what we need to do, but rather it's, it's a story that points to Jesus. 
In and of itself, it's unfulfilled. It's, it's left wanting. It's meant to stoke an anticipation and expectation in our hearts and minds that ultimately lead us to Jesus. And, and so that, that then, however, still leaves us with the question of, okay, yeah, but what about, what do we do then with all of these commands? Some of these, some of these odd things. Um, obviously, I think most of us would say, yeah, the, the thing about the garments and not having two types of material, that probably doesn't apply to us today. Um, but what about that command about not committing adultery? That's kind of a biggie, right? Or not murdering, right? And so, so the natural question is still raised. What is the criteria by which we evaluate what, what passes over and what applies? And this is where, again, Jesus... Um, you know, there, there's an old joke about Sunday school class where whatever the question is, if you just say Jesus, you're going to get it right. Um, that's, not, that's, not a bad, that's not a bad approach. Um, Jesus, when once asked, which was a common question that rabbis would be asked in, uh, in ancient Judaism, okay, Jesus, what's the most important commandment in the law? Again, 613 commands. And, and Jesus was asked, probably on more than one occasion, what's the most important command out of all of them? And Jesus quotes two. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. And, and he says, then everything else, the law and the prophets, all of the scriptures, all of the commands, they all hang on these two. In other words, these two commands to love God and love neighbor summarize, summarize all the commands in the Old Testament. And so even those weird ones that we don't quite understand and that don't apply to today, when we get to Jesus, what we discover is that the heart, the heart behind all of God's commands are that we might become a people who know and increasingly surrender our lives to and love him and therefore will love self-sacrificially all others who are made in his image. That's the, that's the heartbeat of the law. And therefore, Jesus and, and the New Testament becomes the criteria by which we, we evaluate the particulars that we find in, in the Old Testament. There's so much more that we can say on this that could be said, but... Uh, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop there. It's, 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 a good, it's a good question. Um, I'm going to pass it back, back to you, Matt. Okay. Question four. You know, we've, we started in Act 1 with creation, went to Act 2, the fall. Act 3, uh, the promise to Israel. Um, and now we're in Act 4. So, Matt, you tell me. If sin, if sin was dealt with on the cross, why do we still deal with it? Yeah. This is a good question because it touches the heart of, um, of all of the problems in our lives. <laughs> um, it is getting late, though, so I'm going to fly through this answer. Um, there's a moment in Colossians, and could you put it up because this slide thing isn't working? Yeah, there's a moment in Colossians where this is the way that the Apostle Paul puts kind of the situation. He writes, and when you were dead in your trespasses, that's sin, and the uncircumcision of your flesh... God made you alive together with him when he forgave us all our trespasses. He forgave us all of our sins, erasing the record that stood against us 
with its legal demands. He set this aside, nailing it to the cross. And it is Jesus there. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them, triumphing over them in it. And so there's two things at play here. One is that Paul is not saying that sin as, as, as an activity is erased, because we all, I mean, we live with that every day. But what he is saying is that the consequences of it have been erased, have been um, washed away, right? So uh, the record that stood against us, that threatens us uh, with little D death, yes, but with big D death, that has been washed away um, on the cross. It, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was nailed there. The other thing at play, though, is that uh, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public example of them. And that's to say the powers that are behind sin, that are behind evil, um, they have been defeated. That, that battle has been won. And there's a famous kind of um, way to think about this. The end of World War II, since it was a world war, right? It ended in May of 45-ish, right? Something like that? Yes, 45. Um, it ended in May in Europe, let's say. Uh, but for weeks and in some parts in months, in like remote places of the world, the battle was still going because they hadn't heard the news yet. They didn't, they didn't get the message. They didn't get the memo that, that, that the battle was actually won. And that's, that's kind of the situation that we find ourselves in today. Um, we know, because we were just told, the battle's, the battle's been won. Most people out there don't know that. But even if we know it, it doesn't mean that we actually live like it. It doesn't mean that we stop uh, fighting that war. It still rages on, even though the victory, I mean, you know, the peace accord has already been signed. Um, for us to learn to live as if this is actually true, this is what Christian living is all about. This is what we're called to do. Um, learn that we actually have been forgiven. We can live a different way. And uh, as Paul says elsewhere, we are actually ambassadors of this message. We've been entrusted with this message to share this with the world around. And so that's a, a, a very abbreviated version of the answer to that question. The next one is um, coming from Act 5. And this is the part of the story that we live in. We're actually going to skip this one for now because for the next four weeks, we're going to actually answer this question in four different ways. So we're going to skip this, and we'll come back to it. So the last one, this is from, uh, you know, what we talked about last week here. New creation, new heavens, new earth. Yeah. Oh, you're laughing at that, not at me. Good. Um, in last Sunday's message, you didn't mention heaven. What gives? What gives? It's a great question. I actually love this question. And I'll have to be brief, um, but let me begin with ancient Greek philosophy, uh, where all good answers begin. There was a, a very popular perspective in ancient Greek philosophy uh, articulated by the Greek philosopher Plato uh, that kind of went like this. The human body is like a prison, trapped inside of which is the soul. And the whole journey of life is one in which the soul longs to be free. And, uh, and the end point, the end game of life is that time when the body dies and the soul is released to then go live in the heavens forever. Uh, if that, that, that's again, ancient Greek philosophy, that's Plato. Um, if that sounds familiar, 
Uh, it's because Plato has had a very big influence on the way that we today still think, including the way that Christians think. And, and one of the problems when it comes to this characterization of life and hope, uh, at least for Christians, is that when we read the Bible, we, we actually get a picture of something that looks different than ancient Greek philosophy. Um, I think uh, a lot of Christians' understanding of the hope that we have has been shaped by Plato. Um, but again, when we read the New Testament, the great hope, the great hope that we have is not that our disembodied souls will go up to heaven and live with God forever. It's resurrection. The great, read Jesus, read Paul, the rest of the New Testament, Revelation, like the great hope is that one day God, because of who he is, he will do for everyone who is in Christ, he will do to us what he did to Jesus that we will be raised from the dead into new creation, right? What we get at the end of the story is not what some have called evacuation theology, right? Where we're just sucked up and we live in heaven forever with God. No, heaven's coming to earth. God is, there's a new heaven and a new earth, a new creation, and God is coming down. This, in a new creation, this right here, is where the action will be. Um, now, now, this raises the question, and again, I'll try to be brief. This raises the question when it comes to, okay, so if, if the ultimate hope is new creation and resurrection, we will be raised from the dead. If that's the ultimate hope, like, what happens now? Right? That, that's, that's the question on everyone's mind. Like, okay, so what does that mean for now? Like, if, I, if I'm in Christ and I, and I die, um, what, what does this mean? And, and this is where, again, Jesus, uh, Jesus is, is helpful. There, there's this scene when Jesus is literally dying on the cross next to a thief. And, uh, and there's an exchange between Jesus and, and this thief. And this thief uh, displays faith in Jesus. And Jesus' response to him is, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. And so, so if we know the end game is resurrection in new creation, and therefore the question is, yeah, but what about in between? Then, then that leaves in my mind two options. One thing we can know for sure. The one thing we can know for sure is that we are with Christ. We are with Jesus. Whether that means we find ourselves with him in heaven until the end, where we will then be raised from the dead. Or if what that means is from the perspective of one passing away, the very next moment of consciousness is the end. Whichever way you look at it, if you pass away and you are in Christ, you are with him. But Again, the end game, the great hope that we have is resurrection in new creation. In a world where there's no crying or mourning or pain, no suffering, sin, death, and evil has been taken away, right? And the very presence of God dwells in our midst. That's, that's the hope. 
again, like all of these questions, it deserves more. Um, but I think we'll we'll wrap up yeah. now. Yeah. So those were um, those were kind of five of the big questions that we got from you. Um, but there is there is something we want to leave you with, which is which is God's question to you. Uh, there's a moment in uh, really Matthew, Mark, and Luke where Jesus is talking with his followers, and he says to them, "What's the story people are telling about me? Who do people say that I am?" And this, you know, he's he's Elijah, he's John the Baptist, he's Jeremiah, he's one of the prophets, whatever it is. And then Jesus uh, turns to him, turns to uh, the followers, and he says this up here. He says to him, uh, "But what about you? Who do you say?" that I am. Who do you say that I am? There, the, 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 the background of this series is there's all kinds of stories that are told out there that are fighting to be the stories of our lives, the narratives that dominate, that drive, that determine what we are. Um, stories from, you know, the American dream of 2.5 kids, white picket fence, and that sort of thing, um, success, climbing the ladder. There's, there's, there's stories of, uh, uh, you know, that our consumer culture tells us about what we should do with our money and how that brings us security. If we progress technologically and scientifically and uh, if we're more civilized, we will perfect ourselves. There's those stories. But then there's also the stories that, um, that you were raised in, right? There's the story of um, my parents got divorced when I was eight and that forever changed my life. Or I went through this thing when I was 16 and that, that forever changed my life. And these are the stories that are vying for us. And in each of these stories, there is, there is like a Lord who is fighting for our affection. And then over here you have Jesus. And he is saying, uh, there is one true story of the Lord, and I am at the center of it. And the question that each of us are asked, and we're asked it really every day of our lives, is which story will you believe in? Which story will you live in? Who do you say that I am? Uh, we invite you to come back over the next few weeks really to hear uh, more about how to live into that story, how to answer that question in a way that, that, that changes uh, your life and that changes your world and that can actually change the world. Um, who do you say that I am? Awesome. Would you pray with us? <clears throat> Father, uh, we are so grateful for who you are, for who you've revealed yourself to be, especially through your son, Jesus. R remind us, Father, of the truth that to all of the questions that we have, not just the questions that we answered this morning, but the questions that that resonate in our minds and in our hearts throughout the week, the questions that weigh heavy on us. To all of these questions, what you give us is, is, not, is not simply an answer, but you give us your very self, whom we encounter when we look at Jesus. Because what we need most, Father, is not a an intellectually satisfying answer, uh, but what we need is you. And an invitation, a call, a summons to live the life 
that you created us for, which is found in a relationship with you. And so for that, we thank you, we love you, and we worship you. And, and we pray, Father, in the name of your Son, by the power of your Spirit, who's here even now, this morning, in our room, stirring the affections of our hearts for you. Amen.